When was the last time you were afraid? I don't mean just a scary situation in traffic when uh, there's some other driver around you who you figured was going to do something erratic or dangerous. This is Northern Virginia. That's, that's everyday life, that sort of stuff. But, I mean, when was the last time you were walking into a situation with a sense of, of dread, apprehension, um, just of, of, of maybe even discouragement? It might have been a call from the boss that we need to talk and it sounded more serious than, than usual. Maybe it's a family situation that's been growing contentious that you have to deal with in some way. Or maybe it's an opportunity to, to share the gospel. Maybe it's an opportunity to, to serve and honor Christ in a situation, but it still feels a little scary. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to the Corinthian believers, gives them a glimpse into his state of mind when he first came to their city, to the city of Corinth. He, he helps them to understand a little bit about what he was thinking as he approached their city. And in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And... I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That is a remarkable admission from the Apostle Paul about his state of mind as he was coming into the city of Corinth. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. If you'll turn to Acts chapter 18, it is Paul's second missionary journey. And, and this is really the last city, the last major stop, if you will, on that second missionary journey, and it's the city of Corinth. Um, after today, we're going to take a break from the book of Acts for a little while. The next two Sundays, we'll be looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Um, but this chapter 18, I wanted to make sure we got a little ways into chapter 18, because the second missionary journey ends with verse 22. So it's kind of a good break point for us to take a couple of months and step away from Acts for a little bit it, right here at this end of this particular missionary journey. Paul's confession to the Corinthians was written probably about three years after what we're going to read in Acts chapter 18, because we know he stayed in Corinth for 18 months. He'll tell us this. Um, and then it is later during his travel that he writes back to them. And it's in the course of that writing that he says, when I came to you, there was weakness and fear and much trembling. Verse 1 begins Acts chapter 18. And, and he says, this is the entrance here. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Luke just sort of tells us the, the historical nature. He left Athens, went about 40 miles or so down to Corinth. Paul, though, in 1 Corinthians is, is much more transparent when he says there's weakness, fear, and trembling. Why? Why that? Why, why that sort of emotional struggle that's going on in, in Paul's heart as he's entering this city? I, I think two things. First, if you think back to what what Paul has been experiencing, what has gone on during those first two missionary journeys. I think that helps give us a little bit of frame of reference. You can go all the way back to chapter 13 when it's the first sort of persecution that is stirred up. They are in Antioch in Pisidia and there is opposition there. And Paul and Barnabas are, are being chased out of the city and, and being beaten and it is a difficult place. They flee to Iconium, and there the, the threat is that they will be stoned, that they would be 
execute it by, by having rocks heaped upon them. They, they flee there. They go to Lystra, and there at Lystra, Paul actually is stoned. He is taken outside the city, and he is left for dead. And so they have gone through suffering after suffering. We know that after this, that there's um, Paul's confrontation with the, the, the Jewish um, that they were professing to be believers, what they were teaching was, was wrong at best, if not outright false, that, that were going into Galatia and saying to the Gentiles that you have to obey the Jewish law. They were trying to put this impossible weight on these Gentiles to keep the Jewish law. And Paul's having to deal with that confrontation with these teachers. In chapter 16, Paul and Silas are severely beaten in Philippi, and they are imprisoned. We read about that. There's suffering there, and the scars they carry from there. They go on to Thessalonica and Berea, and it's the same thing that happens again and again. They are chased and forced to flee out of the city under threat of persecution. And then it's on to, to Athens. And Athens is sort of the, the city with um, all of the big philosophical ideas and discussion where sort of anything can be discussed except for Christ. Because even there, Paul gets a mixed reaction when he is preached about the gospel of Jesus Christ, as David took you through last week in Acts chapter 17. Even there, there is this mixed response that includes mocking of Paul and the message that he is preaching. I don't know about you, but I, I'm not sure that many of us at this point, and, and understand again, we've, we've read that over the, a short couple of months. It's over a period of a couple of years of travel and work and all the logistics involved and all the hardship of getting from place to place. I'm not sure how many of us at that point would still be pressing on. But Paul is, and he's now alone on top of that. If you recall, the Timothy and Silas remain behind at Berea, so he goes to Athens, now he goes to Corinth, and as far as we can tell, there is no significant traveling companions with him. They will eventually join him in Corinth in this chapter, but, but after all of that suffering, all of what has been before, he's now headed into what is probably the worst city of all, at least in terms of reputation, he's now headed for Corinth, which is the largest, most notorious, most pagan of the cities that he has gone to. And as far as we can tell, he is traveling alone. Corinth was a major city, at least a couple of hundred thousand people, and then slaves in addition to that. It was a seat of government and a, a, a major business center because of its location being on the water and on trade routes. It could be accessed by trade from both land and sea. So Corinth is an important place, large, prosperous. In the second century BC, the Romans destroyed Corinth. They came back about a century later and rebuilt it better than ever because they understood the that first rule of real estate, location, location, location. They understood how pivotal it was, and so they, they built this great city there in Corinth. Uh, it just had incredible value. Athens, if you think of Athens, it's sort of the hub of um, intellect, education, sort of philosophical dialogue. We might think of Athens as being sort of the, the university town kind of place where, where there's all sorts of discussion of philosophy, no real commitment to absolute truth. But if, if Athens was like Harvard or Yale, Corinth was sort of like New York City. This was the place where uh, there, there was great business, great prosperity, and there were very few moral boundaries. Uh, if you take a look at the picture of the city of Corinth, this is sort of from behind the city and you're looking out toward the water. You're, you're on top of a, an elevation that, that's the backdrop to the city. If you were looking from the water, you'd see this 
cliff sort of area, this peak that's about 1,900, 2,000 feet. That's the backdrop to the city. And on top of that, some of that fortress area was built later on after the time of Paul. That would have been more, a couple of centuries, in fact, after Paul. But what was on this, this peak, this summit behind Corinth, at the time when Paul got there was the Temple of Aphrodite. That would have been the the prominent spot that overlooked the city and that all of the attention was drawn was to the temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the Greek goddess of love, which is the the polite and sort of cleaned up description that the secular historians will give you when they, they say she's the goddess of love. Aphrodite was the goddess of beauty, sex, and fertility. She was frequently depicted nude in Greek art and Greek mythology is filled with the tales of her adultery and childbearing with other gods. And so you can imagine when you carry this into the, the worship of Aphrodite, what then is included in that? It was a celebration of debauchery. The central element in the worship of Aphrodite was prostitution uh, under the guise of, of claiming to be acts of worship. And it did not all happen in sort of an isolated hillside spot. The, the prostitutes who worked the temple of Aphrodite uh, spent their time down in the city below, uh, roaming the streets of Corinth and doing business with travelers and sailors and residents. And that all fed into this city that was notorious for its immorality. Uh, in classical Greek writing, to say that someone acted like a Corinthian was sort of the, yep, we know what you mean. That person is sexually immoral. They are that kind of person. Uh, it, it, euphemism in, in classical Greek writing uh, for the phrase Corinthian girls was a euphemism for prostitutes. And so this is the reputation the city had. There was a, a Jewish population and a synagogue, which we'll read about, but there were also temples to Apollo and Octavia and the Roman emperor. And so it is a pluralistic sort of idol worshiping, immoral, anything goes, um, pleasure and commerce and prosperity are sort of the gods kind of city. That's the city that Paul is about to enter to preach you need to repent of your sin. You need to turn from your sin and from these godless ways. And you need to come to the one true God and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior who died for your sin. So I think, I think when we understand that, when, when we think about the, what Paul has been through and where he is headed, we get a little better sense of why he said to the Corinthians, when I came to you, it was in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul understands the pivotal importance of Corinth. Again, I, I put myself in this situation. I think I'm, I am trying somehow to rationalize Corinth away. I've just been in Athens and it's been a mixed sort of result. At least I didn't get chased from the city. But why go to Corinth? It's a godless pagan place. But Paul understood Corinth as a crossroads place. And, and what he's been doing is going to these kinds of cities that are on major travel routes because then not only does the gospel begin a church, but it begins to spread out and people travel. We're going to see Aquila and Priscilla who came from Italy and from out of Rome and, and it, it appears had already been in contact with the gospel and were saved. And so what's happening is Paul's preaching in these cities throughout Galatia and Macedonia is that the gospel is now starting there, but it's already spreading and it's going way beyond what, what is just being proclaimed by he and the other apostles. And so Corinth is important. He's 40 miles, 40-ish miles away in Athens. And so he goes there 
And yet, considering all he's experienced and the reputation of this city, it is not hard to imagine that there is fear. Paul is an ordinary person, just like you and I, and he knows he is about to walk into a really dark place. When was the last time you you were walking into a situation where you just felt discouraged, defeated before you even start? You're just fearing the worst. There might be that, that... person that you are afraid to talk to about Jesus Christ or you've tried before and and they will not hear you, they have rejected you, Um, or or maybe it's a situation where you you know you need to take a stand and do something distinctively different. You will be marked out as a follower of Jesus Christ because you will be different and, and there's a sense of fear and discouragement. So with that in mind, I want to walk through this passage. And I want you to just see some of the ways God meets Paul in his weakness and fear and trembling. There's, there's seven ways. We won't take that long on each one. But, but there's ways in which God supplies Paul strength for ministry. And we're just going to walk through them as we go, go through this passage. Acts 18, and again, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens, went to Corinth. He found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently came from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. All right. First thing I want you to see that that where God meets Paul in this is he provides community. He provides companionship for Paul. Paul arrives in this city not knowing what to expect, has not been able to reserve anything ahead of time, has not been able to email any kind of community there ahead of time. He is going in largely blind, and and God so kindly provides Priscilla and Aquila, and then in a short time after that, Timothy and Silas arrive. Text doesn't tell us a lot about Aquila and Priscilla, except that um, they had come from from the area of Rome, from Italy. It it doesn't say whether they were believers, but we presume they were because the text doesn't talk about their conversion or their baptism. It appears that that they have heard the gospel previously. It does say that they were forced to leave Rome under Claudius. Secular history confirms this in the year 49 that Claudius um, evicted the, 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 the Jews from Rome, that he expelled them from out of Rome. And the secular history tells us it was on account of one named Crestus. There's either two ways to take that. It was either a rebellious Jew who was leading a, some kind of revolt in, in Rome, and his name was indeed Crestus, or it is a mistaken identity, because it was written decades after the fact, um, by somebody who misinterpreted the name, and it means Christ, that it's also the possibility that as, as we've seen what happens, the gospel comes in, it often comes to the Jews within the city, and the reaction is mixed. There are some who believe, there are some who immediately become hostile, and, and there becomes this sort of opposition and fighting that goes on. It's possible under either scenario that, that there is trouble stirring up and Claudius decides rather than sort out who's doing what and who believes what, he just expels the Jews from Rome. He doesn't want to deal with it and he sends them out. So Paul now connects with this couple. They have the, the same occupation 
Uh, he has to make a living. And, and so immediately there is a relationship struck up and he works with them and he lives with them, works in this tent making while on the Sabbath, reasoning in the synagogue, while going and, and, and persuading and, and answering questions and dealing with the Jews in the synagogue. And then, of course, at some point, we know that, that Timothy and Silas arrive. The whole reason I point this out is it, it's just encouraging, again, to see God has designed us for community. God has designed us to, to operate within a context of other believers to exhort us and come alongside us and help us and, and make friendship with us. And, and that's what God supplies, even as Paul comes into this city. Um, we are not meant for isolation. And, and, and frankly, if, if, if we're in that sort of circumstances that, that Paul described in 1 Corinthians, where we're weak and fearful and trembling, I don't know about you, but the temptation for me is to pull back even further. It, it's to sort of hunker down and, and withdraw and, and not want to be especially transparent in that moment, not want to pour out my troubles in front of other people. And so I just tend to get more isolated. And the reality is, here is Paul in this difficult situation in this dark place, and God almost immediately blesses him with companionship. He, he brings him people that he can come alongside, who he can pray with and, and talk with and fellowship with. This is a lesson that, that he will go on and, and, and strive to teach the Corinthian believers. And one of the, the, the most important chapters on this community life in the body is 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says, listen, the, the local church the gathering of believers, the analogy he draws is it's like a human body. It's all of these different parts at different skill levels and functions who are interdependent and rely on one another. They can't be separated and continue to function. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, he writes, for the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that does not make it any less a part of the body. The eye can't say to the hand, I, I don't need you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. For a Christian to function well, he or she must be committed to a local body because they, they need that believer and that believer needs the fellowship of the body and the communion of the, of the saints ministering and serving and encouraging together. But there's another piece here. That's, that's the first one. The second piece, I, I, I think, admittedly, reading between the lines a little bit in verse 5, but he says in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. That, that word for occupied has the idea of being consumed with. It appears that when Timothy and Silas come, there's a change for Paul. Previously, the focus has been on working with Aquila and Priscilla to supply so that he's not a burden to people. So he's working with his hands to, to pay for his own food and, and to provide for the housing he shares now with them. And now when Timothy and Silas come, he is able to be fully occupied, fully engrossed in the word. It, it, it's likely one of two things. Either Timothy and Silas have, as is often the case, we're going to see elsewhere in the New Testament, they come with a gift. Philippians 4, Paul says to the Philippians, thank you so much for renewing your care for me and sending a gift to me to provide for me. It's either an offering that some other believers have given to Timothy and Silas to take to Paul, or it's Timothy and Silas saying, we'll, we'll do the work. We'll do what's needed to pay the bills. 
you focus in right now on what you need to do with the synagogue. But, but either way, I, I, I think it's fair to say God not only supplies community, but he just supplies basic help, basic care, meeting of practical needs. The, the community is not simply for, for friendship and encouragement, though that's important, but it's also for practical help. As, as believers, we should work hard, as, as Paul models, but when there are times of need, we should not be too proud to, to receive what God is giving through other believers, to, to, to gladly receive help from others, nor should we be selfish in, in providing to others. It's what James writes about in James 2 when he says, if a brother or sister's poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and you simply say, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? Part of our ministry as the body not only coming alongside the, the one who is weak and in fear and trembling, but it's also ministering to those practical needs to help. Stuart mentioned it during the announcements. It, it's just another example of God's kindness. I, I, this week when I did the midweek email and, and mentioned the, the Christmas outreach to Lorton Community Action Center, just you know, people donating toys, gift cards, things for, for families in the area that, that are in need and, and having a struggle at this time of year. I, I, I went to get the link to put it in my email and I looked at the sign up genius and I texted Lacey and I said, what do I do with this? There's, there's like almost 80 slots here and they're all full. What are, we, what are we doing with the overflow at this point? That is a sweet blessing that God in his grace is allowing us to be able to minister to, to simple needs, to practical needs of those in the community and, and, and show the love of Christ, uh, show them the, the, the concern of, of Christ in a very tangible way. Paul, again, will, will give the same message to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 8 when he says, if God's blessed you with a surplus, use it to help those in need who don't have at this point. Use it to share with them. All right, let's read on. Acts 18, again, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. All right. Pivotal moment. Paul has now for several weeks been going into the, the, the synagogue, reasoning on the Sabbath with the Jews there at the synagogue. And now verse 6 comes and, and there is this transition. This is not a blanket statement about ministry to Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying this is it from here on out. What he's saying is here in Corinth, I am no longer going to continue to try this reasoning and persuading in the synagogue. I am now going to focus my attention on the Gentiles. And the reason he does that is he, he describes it in that they have opposed and reviled him. After weeks of doing this, Paul has come to the place where he has said, that's enough. God here shows us that he not only supplies community and help, but, but he supplies this, this response to our need for truth. There are times when, when our fear and, and discouragement about ministering, especially in evangelism, ministering to other people, especially when it comes to talking to people about Jesus, that our fear and discouragement is sort of rooted in this sense that, 
that I am failing because they are not coming to faith in Christ. I must be doing something wrong. I, it, it's how I'm saying it. It's my inability to answer their questions. Somehow this is, this is all on me, and if people don't respond, then, then it must be my persuasion here that's failing. And, and, and we're grieved and disappointed because they haven't responded like we hoped they would. And, and there's an appropriate place for grief because they've not received the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But, but here's Paul in this hostile place, preaching the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and being rejected. Again, I, I, I put myself in Paul's place, and I think, how bad can this get? I, I found the one sort of bright spot in Corinth, the place where they at least believe there is one God, and now I've come there and preached, and even here they are now rejecting and reviling. And instead of becoming more fearful and trembling, Paul's response is, I have spoken the truth. I have come to you with the truth of your Messiah, who is Jesus. I have come and I have proclaimed him to you, and it's on you at this point. You are now responsible as to how you respond to this. And I am frankly fearful for the consequences that you may face, but this is not on me in terms of you will stand before God, judged for what you have done with Jesus Christ and the gospel. And he is able to in that moment say, I've been faithful with the truth. I have been a steward of what God has given me. For a guy who entered Corinth with fear and much trembling. This is, this is a pretty remarkable bit of God strengthening him so that he is not even more fearful and trembling, but on the contrary, his last words on the way out the synagogue, what, what he does there when it says he shakes the dust out, that is the symbolic message of, I'm not taking anything of yours with me, not even the dust from in this place. I want to make sure I leave that behind for you because this is a complete break in the relationship. You have now opposed and blasphemed the gospel message that I have been preaching to you. I am leaving you with that truth, and it is now on you, and I am pressing on. That is Paul resting on truth. God's grace had brought him into this dark and difficult city, but he had been faithful to tell the Jews the message of the Messiah. This is Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And when they rejected it, Paul says, that's fine. I can rest on the truth of, of what I've spoken. You and I need to be filled with grace toward others. We watch our world and we see the evil and there's a sense of revulsion sometimes and anger at what we see. And, and we need God's grace in order to love those who are lost and to care for their souls. But we also need to be not compromising on truth. We need to speak to them of what they need to, to turn from their sin and believe in him. Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. We need God to help us be compassionate in our teaching and application of the truth. But at some level, we've got to be able to rest in that and say, this, this is the truth. We have spoken it. and We trust God to do his work. So verse 7 again, he left there, went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. We need community. We need help. We need truth. And fourth, we need hope. This is remarkable when you think about it. Here is the house next door to the synagogue. 
It is owned by a Gentile who has apparently at one point in the past said, I'm going to go see what they teach over here and has been going to the synagogue and has been learning about the one true God and has become a worshiper of that one true God. And now Paul has come and proclaimed Christ and he is now beginning to embrace Christ. And as if that isn't enough, Paul, as he's next door using this home now to preach in, overcomes a ruler from the synagogue one of the, the elders, if you will, in the synagogue who now comes with his family and embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ says we want to hear about him and we want to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is, this is that point, again, where Paul may well be tempted to feel like I've hit rock bottom. I, I've come into this city that I knew was going to be hard to begin with. I've come to the, the, what I thought was the, the best possible scenario to come to the synagogue and speak, and, and that has gone wrong, and you've got to be feeling at some point like this is, this is just a really rough, hard place, and nothing's going to happen, and here comes God in the midst of that to do what God does, and he is saving sinners. He is pouring out his spirit, and there is this Gentile, and now this synagogue ruler, and now he says in, in verse 8, other Corinthians who are hearing Paul and believing. Paul's in one of the, the darkest of cities, in one of the darkest of moments, and he proclaims Christ, and he is mocked and blasphemed, and, and, and no doubt at that moment feeling like, what's left? All that's left next is for them to kick me out of town, and God moves mightily and says, Paul, watch this. And here comes the synagogue ruler to say, I, I believe, I believe in Jesus Christ. And here come Gentiles and, and other Jews who begin to believe in him. We must not lose hope. We must not lose hope that God is working in what even seemed to be our, our darkest moments with the most difficult of people. Galatians 6, 9, in due season we will reap if we do not give up. We must continue to hope in our Savior, that he is able to work in, in the darkest of circumstances. And, and that sort of moves us into the next one, community, help, truth, hope, and then perseverance. Even when we feel discouraged, we need to keep pressing on. We need to keep serving. By God's grace, we need to keep persevering. And God gives to Paul the perseverance to not walk out of the synagogue and leave the city. That, that, that's what I'm thinking at this point. When it's over at the synagogue, it's time to get out of here before it gets worse. Throw in the towel and say, tried. We'll come back some other time. He had been through this how many times before. Luke's given us the accounts that we've read before. And, and, and who knows what all else. He's been down this path and he knows what, where this can go. And I don't think anybody would have faulted Paul if he left the synagogue and said, I'm done here. And instead, by God's grace, he goes next door and he continues to preach Christ, and God begins to save people. Fear and discouragement should not stop us from serving. We need to pray for perseverance. We need to ask God to give us the perseverance and the determination to continue to speak of Christ, to continue to, to, to walk in obedience and serve him. Fear of others, sense of defeat because we've shared the gospel and no one got saved, that's no reason to quit. We need perseverance from God to continue to speak. All right, let's read verse 9, and we'll read on down through 17. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months 
teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Just think about the last section here for just a minute. The, the, the last section is, is Luke's making the point that one of the specific things that God promised Paul was, I will not let any harm come to you in this city. I will protect you. That is not necessarily one that you and I get at all times. We know God is with us, but we don't always get the specific promise that where you are in this city, nothing wrong will ever happen. He gives this to Paul. I can specifically assure you, Paul, that no harm will come to you. So the, the reason for this account is to show us that there was violence in this city, there was hatred, and there was anger, and there was every effort to try to bring Paul before the local magistrate and say, this guy is stirring up trouble, he's leading people away from the worship of the emperor, this guy, same as you would have gotten in Thessalonica and Berea and all the cities before that, this guy needs to be beaten and imprisoned and stopped. And you have this magistrate who says, I don't really care. I, I, I have nothing to do with this. This is sort of an inter-squad sort of thing amongst you guys. You sort it out. To the point that another ruler in the synagogue is taken by them and beaten in front of him, which, which again, Luke is helping us to see this is a violent crowd that is capable of taking justice, so-called justice, into its own hands. Why they're beating Sosthenes, we have no idea other than maybe he was coming to faith in Christ or he didn't do enough to stop Paul or didn't argue the case well in front of the tribunal. But Gallio's just ambivalent to the whole thing. The, the, the point, again, is to see this is just God's hand of protection on Paul against this vicious mob. But here's, here's the, the main point I want you to see. This is number six. We need exhortation. And I key in on verse nine. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, and goes on and says, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. I have many in this city who are my people. This, this, night, this vision that comes to Paul would make sense, more sense, I should say, if it was at the beginning. If it was at the beginning of when he got to Corinth and God says to him in a vision, you're going to be fine, Paul. I'm, I'm, everything's good. But it comes at an interesting place. Revival has just begun. There, there has just begun to see the bearing of fruit. The harvest has just begun. The prior verse is the one that tells us that, that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. So we're at the point where the scene emotionally, um, you know, just in terms of the storyline, it's, it's completely changed. Now there are Gentiles who are coming to the house of Titius and they're listening and they're being saved and there are Jews and all of this is changing. And then this vision comes at night, which would suggest to us that, that in Paul's heart, very much like yours and my heart, there's still that temptation to be discouraged. Even when we see God at work, I don't know about you, but there's still that temptation in my heart to go, yeah, 
but it'll probably still go wrong. <laughs> this is nice right now, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad for what God is doing, but if I'm Paul, I'm thinking, but I'm still going to get beaten. You know, they're still going to come for me at some point. And, and, and in the midst of God now saving people, there's still something going on in Paul's heart to the point that God has to speak to Paul in a vision and exhort him and say, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Keep speaking. Don't be silent. Just press on, Paul. Think about this. In, in the first century, Paul was, if not the preeminent Christian theologian, he's certainly high on the list of those who have a grasp on God's truth and they know God's word and they know God's promises. If you said to Paul, hey, Paul, I, I'm just wondering, is, is God always with his people? Paul would have been able to rattle off from Scripture the answer to that. Of course, God is always with you. In fact, Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. If anybody doesn't need to hear this and knows it factually, it's Paul. And yet, what does God say to him? Don't be afraid. Go on speaking, for I am with you. Here's the the bold, strong theologian Paul, desperately needing exhortation from God, desperately needing God to speak to him and say, I'm here, Paul. Keep speaking. I'm not forsaking you. If, if Paul needed this, then certainly you and I do. We need to be receiving truth from God's word. We need his spirit to minister to us, his, this community to come alongside us when we are tempted to fear and discouragement. We've got to be eager to keep going back to God's truth and keep being reminded that over and over again, God appears to his people in scripture and right away says, do not be afraid. I'm with you. I'm present with you. Don't give up your hope because I'm not abandoning you regardless of what your circumstances feel like. Paul, regardless of what happens from this moment on, regardless of your worst fears, I am with you. If Paul, who, who had seen all that he had seen, the, the Philippian jailer who had locked him in stocks, if Paul had, had seen the, the earthquake that shook the whole place and set him free and this Philippian jailer coming and saying, what must I do to be saved? If Paul, who had seen God do these mighty things, is at this point of discouragement and fear and trembling and needs God to say, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. So do you and I. And, and, and we get that from God's word by hearing him exhorting and correcting us. There's a sense in which this is so reminiscent of Elijah, right? In the Old Testament, when Elijah's been dealing with the prophets of Baal, and, and he's had this confrontation with them, and God has powerfully judged these evil prophets in front of Elijah and has given Elijah this great victory. And what does Elijah do? And he runs to a cave and he's, he's by himself and he is crying out saying, I'm all alone. There's no one left. I, I, I have no hope. I don't know what to do next. And what does God do? He comes to Elijah and he says, get up and continue. It's another interesting comparison here, I think, between Paul's circumstances and Elijah and this exhortation that God gives. And this, this is the last point I just want you to see. In, in God's exhortation of Paul in verse 10, he says, For I am with you, no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. 
He had similarly, he had told Elijah, when Elijah's feeling at the height of his loneliness, God says, I will leave 7,000 in Israel that will not bow the knee to a false god. Beyond community and help, truth, hope, perseverance, and exhortation, the last one I would say is we need confidence that is rooted in God and, and God's character and God's promises. God's promise to Paul in verse 10 just like his assurance to Elijah in, in 1 Kings is, you are not alone. It's not, not only am I with you, but I can assure you that there are people who will come alongside you as brothers and sisters because I am saving them. I am in the process of bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ, and I am saving people, and I am doing this. That line in verse 10, I have many in this city who are my people, is, is rich in theology. Paul did not hear that line and say, oh, it, well, if you've already got them, then I'm moving on. Why do I need to stay here in Corinth? God will do this. He, he says, I've already got many people in this city who are mine. Paul did not understand that to mean, okay, so your work is done here. What Paul understood that to mean was now keep preaching. They are already mine because by virtue of my sovereign decree, they are mine, but they will come through faith in Christ that will come through your proclamation of the gospel. This is that tension that in Romans 9 and 10, when it talks about the fact that, that man is responsible to respond to the gospel, and yet God is sovereign in his decree, in his predestining, in his calling and, and choosing. Yet Romans 10 makes it clear that how will they how will they come to faith if they haven't heard? And how will they hear unless someone proclaims it to them? And, and, and that's what's going on here is God saying to Paul, there will be fruit from your ministry, Paul. I can assure you of that. Just go preach and know that I'm with you. Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas had preached in verse 48, it says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul's confidence at this moment is not in, and it's what we read him in 1 Corinthians 2 saying, it's not in his eloquence, his skill, his choosing the right words, his having answers to all their questions. It's not in his sort of theological background. His confidence is in God's sovereign promise that I desire to save a people and I will save a people and I already have a people in this city and you are the appointed instrument through which the gospel will be preached and those who have been chosen will now be brought into the kingdom. So therefore go and preach. That's why the sovereignty of God in salvation is not a, it's not a deterrent to evangelism. There's times when we can start to come to grips with these truths about God being sovereign in, in election and predestination and think, well, if he's, if he's got it, that's what God's doing, then what do I need to do? And, and, and that's not what's evident here. Paul did not take this to mean God saying, I got it. You have nothing to do. Paul understood this to mean God giving him confidence and saying, I have people in this city and I'm giving you the front row opportunity to go and proclaim to them the gospel and see them come to faith in Christ. And I am giving you assurance that your evangelism will bear fruit. Just be faithful. 
he will use us to save his people. That's the way he's designed this. That's why Jesus describes to his disciples the fields being white unto harvest. How can he say that? How does he know? How does he know there's those who are ripe for harvest? Because he is Lord of the harvest. Because he has done the work and now he's calling us to now be the instruments who will go and, and, and see the fruit be born by our proclamation, by the scattering of the seed, reaping a harvest. We should have confidence in God even with hard people whose lives are ensnared in sin and rebellion and whose response to the gospel we may fear because our God will save those who are his and he gives us the joy of proclaiming that gospel. I, I, we know this because we see it in scripture and we've heard the testimonies of others. I, I was just sitting, Stuart and I were with a, a guy from the church this week who was just who just, we got talking about his mom and he just started sharing her testimony, how in midlife, how God just did this remarkable transforming work in the life of a woman who had had no prior interest to the gospel. It was just something to be mocked and, and God saved her gloriously. And she has since gone on to, to, to years and years of serving Christ. And, and that's why our confidence should be in him. Our confidence should be that God can do this he wants to do this, he desires to do this, and he's eager to use us as instruments. So are you discouraged this morning? Someone you love that has rejected the gospel, are you, are you fearful? Maybe a neighbor or a coworker, somebody that um, you assume if you talk to them about Jesus that their response will be, at best, get lost, at worst, something beyond that. Well, remember again, what Paul wrote. It's the verses where we started in 1 Corinthians, but I just want you to see them again. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, and I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Paul says, I, I dreaded going into Corinth. I knew everything about that city, all the stories that I had heard, and, and humanly speaking, I was fearful, and it wasn't the place that I wanted to go, but I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The, the, the bold Apostle Paul acknowledges that as a human being, he was afraid, afraid of what the response would be, but he also knew that what he was called to do was live Christ. Live Christ, teach Christ, show them Christ, speak Christ, pray and ask God to save them. And that's what he did. And, and, and God has put us in this sweet community of believers so that we would be encouraged in our boldness by brothers and sisters who would pray for us and pray for the, the people in our lives that we are trying to reach for Christ, that God would, would, would bring them to join us in prayer and to help us and, and to remind us when we watch baptisms and we see those testimonies of God's grace to remind us again and again, I am a God who saves. I am a God who does wondrous work. Trust me, I'm with you. God who kindly exhorts us to keep persevering. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as a, as a people who um, we, we can relate especially to to Paul's weakness and fear and trembling. Um, Father, as believers, uh, it's just one of those areas of, of our walk with you that um, 
can provoke so much anxiety in our hearts to, to open our mouths and to talk about Jesus Christ, to urge people to turn to him, to turn from their sin and believe in him. It's an area that can make us anxious. It can discourage us when we don't see fruit born from it. It can cause us to, to have questions and doubts. And Father, we thank you for reminding us again this morning from Scripture that you have you've called your servants to be faithful to your truth, to proclaim the simple message that Jesus is the Christ, that this Jesus who we worship is the Savior. He is the one who came and lived a perfect life, who died in the place of sinners, and who rose again, and in doing so has defeated sin and death. And Lord, you have shown us again that our our sweet task that you've empowered us for is, is to proclaim that, is to speak that truth, not with confidence in our flesh or our eloquence, but confidence entirely in you to accomplish the work of, of saving souls and redeeming them from out of the darkness. Father, we pray that you would give to this body of believers just a renewed sense of boldness and eagerness as we go into this time of year when when if, if for only for the, the calendar's sake, people's attention might somewhat be drawn to what this season is about, perhaps, Lord, you would kindly open opportunities for us to, to talk with others about what, what Christmas is, what it is that we are celebrating, why the coming of Christ is, is so urgently important, not just in history, but, but for them, and why they must turn and believe in him. Lord, thank you for showing us through one such as the Apostle Paul that, um, that we, we in and of our flesh are, are weak and we struggle with emotions and fears. Um, but in the same way that you exhorted Paul in a vision in the night, you do so in your word to us. I'm with you always. Do not be afraid keep speaking. Pray that you would help us as a body of believers to, as we rely on one another for help in these things and to pray for each other, um, to be faithful, to know that you are present and to speak your truth, to press forward without fear, because we believe in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It's in his name we pray. Amen.